0: So we're going to Ruth chapter 2. Uh, let's, the, the verses will be up on the screen, so, so don't worry about that. If you're, if you're not sure where, where Ruth is or if you haven't a Bible with you, it'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. But let's just, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we, we believe that every decision is an important one. that that, that little things have cumulative effects in our lives. That we are a product of the choices that we have made and the choices that other people have made. And so, Lord, we have another choice this morning to be open, to hear what you might say to us, or even from the start to just shut it down and to tune out. Lord, I pray that you would just be speaking to each heart. Lord, that each heart would be open to hear what you might say. Lord, you have told us that you reward those who diligently seek you. Lord, count us among that number this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So. We're in Ruth chapter 2, in Ruth 1, we were introduced to a very interesting family. There's a famine in the land of Israel, in particular Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem means place of bread or house of bread. Bet means place or house. Lachem means bread. So Bethlehem is house of bread or place of bread. And when there's a famine in the house of bread, you know that they're in trouble and there's a, sort of a wider knock on effect. And so there was a famine, and last week we spoke about why there was a famine uh, and different things that were happening there. But this family, instead of trusting God, um, looked across the Dead Sea. Hopefully, there we go. This is a a photograph that I took when I was in Bethlehem. So the towns kind of just behind me where you are sitting. This is the plains over. Um, It's a wee bit blurry, but this is the Dead Sea, sitting at 3,500 feet below sea level. And this mountain range then is Moab. So they were able to literally look over across, past all their dry desert barren fields and look to see that the grass was literally greener on the other side. And so they went, well, we've got to go there. That's where the food is. I've got a family. We have to feed them. But we saw that that was a bad idea. God had said, look, under no circumstances do you associate with these people. They, they, they believe in the God of Chemosh, who, who advocates child-infant sacrifices. And, and don't go anywhere near them. Don't have anything to do with them. They're, they're, it's a dark place. Stay away. But Elimelech and Naomi decided that, well, it's okay to sin as long as you've got a really good reason. If your situation is desperate enough, then you have to kind of just do what you need to do. And so what they did was they dishonoured their own God, and actually they honoured the God of the the Moabites, because they lived by sight and not by faith. They didn't trust God. They decided that they could do it by themselves. See, Elimelech, the name Elimelech means God is King, but he didn't live up to his name. Uh, God actually called Moab the, his washpot. We might call it our our bin, or right, the big black bin, all right, where all the rubbish goes. And so you might say that Elimelech walked away from the place of bread in exchange for the place of garbage, Bethlehem from Moab. And so last Sunday night then, we, we kind of developed this then and kind of looked at some of the, the ladies who were left after their husbands, these, their, um, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and his two sons, and um, Crybaby and Sickly, is what their names were, Malon and uh, Chilion. And they, they passed away. And so Naomi tried to cover up her sin. She tried to push others away. She didn't want other people when she went back to Bethlehem to sort of say, I oh, see, you kind of messed up, didn't you? You kind of, you know, you loser, weirdo. You kind of you messed up and kind of excel in her failure. She didn't want that. So the natural thing was to cover it up. And she pushed people away. How sad to hear that God's moving. And then kind of said, well, uh, my pride kind of comes first. do not Don't come here. Don't follow me. Orpah then gave up. She stayed in that place. She was keen to go with Naomi and Ruth, but was managed to be convinced by Naomi that a life back in Moab with the child sacrifice and with the other, that that was better than going to where God was at work. I can make a new life for myself. I can get myself a fresh start and I don't need God for that. It's a sad story. And then there's Ruth. Ruth. Ruth stood up and gave up her her sin, gave up that kind of past life. And despite all the reasons that she had to not trust God, she gave everything up that, that was in her past and said, look, don't push me away and help me. Stop doing that. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you're buried, I will be buried. I am sticking with you. And then chapter two is where the love story begins. Um, this is the part where girl meets boy, boy falls in love with girl. I want to spend this morning just getting to know these two characters a wee bit better. And so it'll be quite practical this morning, and then we'll kind of uh, put a wee bit more depth in, into it this evening. So I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that you're young and single, or if pretending to be young seems like too much hard work for you, um, just pretend that you're talking to a young person, okay? Uh, and the idea of the, the, the conversation is, what should I look for in a spouse? What, what what are the characteristics? What are the traits that I should be prioritizing in someone? All right, is it their bank balance? Is it their chiseled good looks? They're, okay, no. Um, what was it that... Ruth and Boaz saw in each other that drew each other to one another. Now, I could spend a lot of time telling you stories about people I know and some of the thinking that has gone into the beginning of their relationships or lack of thinking that's gone into their relationships. Um, one couple at Bible College, all the worst people at Bible College, but the <laughs> they came from, from small church, a small church. And the very fact that there was someone else their age who kind of was interested in in the Lord, it was like, (gasps) they've got a Bible. I think I love them. It was really incredible. They got engaged. And I I said to the guy, I didn't even know you fancied her. Never mind, we're going out with her. And his response to me was, he looked at me dead in the eye and goes, oh, no, it's not like that. We just feel God's called us together. Mental. Absolutely. Any no wonder people think Christians are crazy? I mean, I'm sure. He says, so, so, I mean, like, do you love her? He says, I'm sure that'll come. He says, no, 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 no. That's, you should start with that. Start with that. It's not the, you know, I mean, there's, there's criteria that needs to be added in, but, you know, you have to start with that. It's not a good recipe for marriage. Then, at the other end of the spectrum, another guy who I met at Bible college. Uh, who, for the record, is now happily married with children. But at the time, he refused to date anyone because no one met his impossibly high standards. I mean, it was impossible as the criteria. This guy wanted to marry a theologian, a Michelin star chef, a beauty pageant winner, be a worship leader, and enjoy sports. He might as well have also added that she should run faster than a speeding bullet and be able to clear buildings with a single bound because it was impossible meet anyone. And I thought to myself, I didn't tell him this, um, but I thought, man, if ever there was such a woman to exist, there's no way she'd want to marry you. You know, it's just it wasn't going to happen. Maybe opposites attract. Maybe give them the benefit of the doubt, but you could certainly argue that opposites attracted with Ruth and Boaz. It's a beautiful story. The two should not have been a good fit yet they were perfectly matched. Uh, and I could overlap this with our relationship with Christ. It's beautiful, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delay that a wee bit. All right? There's lots of pictures of Christ throughout the story of Ruth, but I want to try and develop the story. I want you to get to know the narrative and be familiar with that before we start intertwining the story so you can understand it better. So we'll maybe pull that, start to pull that together a wee bit more next week. But the traits that they did see in each other, what were they? What should we look for in a spouse? Or if you are married, what are the traits, what are the characteristics that you should be determined to, to uh, reflect in your marriages? By the way, I, I should say this. There is not a single person in the world who is perfectly matched to another person. That, that's just not the fact. The fact is that if you expect to meet the one, a concept that I don't particularly believe in anyway, but if you expect that you're going to meet someone and they're just going to be perfect and there's going to be no friction, there's going to be no disharmony, there's going to be no friction at any point, you're kidding yourself. That's not how it is. There will be people, though, that will match you and fit in with you better than others, but there will always be points of friction or tough periods, there will be times when you need to seek God's face and ask for forgiveness. Seek their forgiveness because nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But a relationship that will last needs to be characterized by love. But it's not built on feeling loved. You might wake up and say, well, I don't feel like I love her the way that I used to. Well, guess what? How you feel isn't really all that important. You say, well, what are you talking about? See, marriage is built on the commitment that says, I have promised that for better or for worse, I'm here. In sickness and in health, I'm here. Till death us do part, I am here. I'm sticking with you. I'm not letting go. I'm holding on. I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for us. A successful marriage is built on how well you keep the promises that you made before God. You promise to love them. And you keep your promise. You love them, even if it's a wee bit harder than it was yesterday. Into Ruth then. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So he's connected to her uh, dead husband. Whose name was Boaz, a worthy man, which means he is rich in every sense of the word. All right, he, he's rich financially, but he's rich in character. Um, I've no doubt that this man was a hard worker. I've yet to see God bless a lazy man. That's just how I see it. I've never seen God bless a lazy man, and God will sometimes entrust to an individual great wealth, maybe even staggering amounts, like they can't physically spend it. Uh, maybe you're sort of thinking, oh. I feel like a ministry being called here, you know, let let me do that. But the thing that I see is that he often blesses the most mature believers with that wealth because he trusts them to use it for his glory. Myself included, but most of us might be able to might not be able to handle that temptation. You know, the first thing we do is we'd buy a bigger house or pay off all our debts and we'd do this and we'd do that and we'd do this and I'm sure we'd spend a wee bit for God but we might be tempted to hoard it up. There is a biblical gift called the gift of giving, and I believe God gives wealth to the people with this gift. Boaz, I think, was such a man. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So, so the two verses, we have a contrast. We, we have one who owns land and is rich and is wealthy and is blessed, and then in verse two, it's pointed out that Ruth is a Moabite. Now we know Ruth. I mean, the whole book's named after her. We don't need, you know, sort of the surname <laughs> Ruth the Moabite. But it, it's there purposefully to point out and remind us of who she is. He's a prominent member of society. He, he's he's uh, socializing in the higher, classy circles, the black tie events, and all the rest of it. She is an outsider. She's a foreigner. She's, a, she's someone who God specifically told people not to associate with because of their dark history, because of their dark past, because of their evil ways. There are polar ends of the spectrum. And Scripture's trying to highlight that. They shouldn't have anything to do with each other. But there's something that we learn about Ruth here, even in this. She's diligent. She wants to go and work. She's not just waiting for handouts. She wants to take action. She's going to her mother-in-law. Let me go. Let me go. Some Bible versions say, please let me go. I beg you, let me go. She is eager to go and work and earn a living. Now, let me just explain the law of gleaning. When you harvest your grain you are, you're to, as an owner of a field, you go through the field once. You're not allowed to go through a second time. You go through once, and whatever is left gets left for the poor, and the outsider, and the fatherless, so they can come and find plenty for themselves. So the man who, their man will own the field. He'll employ a couple of men. And they will go through with the size and they grab some and they cut it and they throw it down. They grab some more, they cut it, they throw it down. They grab some more, they cut it and they throw it down. And then there's ladies in the employment of this man who owns the field. And they'll gather the bundles, they'll tie them and then they'll stack them. They'll, they'll gather them up, tie them, stack them. But there's bits being left, single corner and, and, and bits just at every stage of the process getting left behind. And then that's for those who come in behind the widow, the foreigner, the fatherless come through and then it's all taken up to the top of a hill, the threshing floor and it's beaten and it's ground and then it's thrown up in the air and the wind catches the the chaff, the the useless stuff the the unnecessary stuff and blows it away and and the good stuff lands at the bottom and so really statistically they they reckon anywhere between 20 and 25% of a man's field would be left and basically be given away now, in our country at the minute, it's all about efficiency. You know, companies want to be more efficient. We want to maximize profit. We want to squeeze as much as we can out of everyone in every way we can. Could you imagine saying to someone, I take about a quarter of your profits and just leave them there? <laughs> but that's what the their plan was. God said in Leviticus to do this. When you reap the harvest, You shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the the, uh, traveler, the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, he's saying, do it like this. Trust me, I'm God. I'm the one who really looks after you. So if I ask you to do this, trust me in this. This is God's welfare program, and I love it. It doesn't involve just handouts. It doesn't encourage laziness. It's not encouraging people just to sit back, the food's there for them. They can go and get it. It's free. There's no exceptions. There's no restrictions on who can go and get it. All they must do is develop the dignity of a work ethic. You want it? No problem. Just go and get it. We're not going to come and hand it to you. Go and get it. This is good. There's a dignity attached to it rather than just living off handouts, hard labor. They get back home at night, their their backs are sore, they've sweated, and they can relax in in the evening because they know they've earned what's on their table. God has given it to them, but they've went and they've worked for it. And I think that's a good picture. God's people should be concerned about the provision of the poor uh, rather than just maximizing their own profits and getting sort of caught up in it. But the first thing then that we see about Ruth is that she's one of these people. She wants to go and work. She wants to create a living. She wants to look after her family, if, if it is just her mother-in-law and her. And she's prepared to do her part and work hard. She's prepared to trust God, prepared to trust God's people. She doesn't know people. She doesn't know the, the lay of the land. She doesn't know who, who she's working for or what, anything like that. She's just a young believer and says, okay, God, you've told me that this is how it's going to work. Okay, let's, let's do it then. Let, let's go make it work. She's trusting God. Hard working, trusting God. So she set out and went and gleaned in a field of the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So here's the employer. He's coming out from HQ, as it were, his home office. And he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, I've worked in a couple of different places before uh, doing church work. I never remember this kind of a boss. You imagine the boss coming up to you at the start of the day? God be with you and to you. It just doesn't feel very strange. But it tells me that here's a man who's also, not only is he not interested in, in maximizing the money and hitting targets, but also he's more interested in the people that are working for him. It tells me he's a kind man. Ladies, make sure you marry a kind man. If he is mean to you, and nice to others or if he's nice to you and mean to others if you see any unkindness in him don't marry him don't marry him it will create problems you say oh (laughs) I'll fix him I did one doesn't work like that treat them mean keep them keen is no no tagline for a Christian relationship his first words his people are kind but they're also spiritual He's not one way at church and a different way at work. A lot of people will say, oh, the Lord be with you. I'm praying for you. and thinking about you. And they'll say it, no problem at church on a Sunday. But they'll talk very differently during the week. The language that they use, how they speak to people, whether it's their superiors or their employees or their colleagues and co-workers, they speak very differently and say, oh, well, it's under pressure but it's different. Here's another trait, ladies. Marry a spiritual man. Marry a spiritual man. Marry someone who reflects the Jesus that you read and know of in scripture. Now, I don't mean physically, all right? Don't be looking for someone who has a beard, wears his dressing gown, and flip-flops everywhere. That's not a good look. But you're supposed to look for someone who is spiritual. Okay, the, the role of your husband, your husband's role is to lead and to guide you like Christ leads the church. And so let's be very clear. The job of your husband then is not to, to lord over you. Your job is not to serve your husband. Your job isn't to, to overwhelm him uh, and kind of just shower him with, with all the, no, it's actually the reverse the husband sustains you the way Christ sustains the church. And he overwhelms you the way Christ overwhelms the church. His job as head of the house, head of the family, biblically, is to elevate you and beautify you the way Christ does the church. That's the point, husbands. Your job is to see her, your wife realize her full potential, the spiritual gifts that she has, and all those things. That, that's your call. That's your responsibility. That's why God gave you authority to lift her up, not crush her down. And so, ladies, speak a spiritual man who will build you up in the beauty of the Lord. That's his job. In writing to Corinth and 2 Corinthians, Paul says, don't be unequally yoked. It's a farming picture of relationships. The idea is that a wise farmer knows which pair of ox to put together. He could have half a dozen ox, but they're not always going to be the right fit. And so it wasn't just a case of grabbing any two and firing them on and making it go, but getting the right pairs. The idea was that the way the field will be plowed evenly it is that if you have two oxen who can work well together, that they move forward at the same pace, that they listen and, and hear the same commands from the master. Uh, and, and so that Paul saying, look, spiritually in relationships, if you want to be able to look at your life, look at your field and look back and see a, a job well done and to be happy and content with all that you've achieved, you need to be matched up with someone who's going to walk with you in that. With the same goal and the same master, The same walk, and I know the verse specifically goes on to say that, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But I I think when you're talking about marriage and relationships, you have to understand that you've got to be pickier than that. You can't just say, (gasps) they asked Jesus into the heart, oh, we're meant to be. No, be pickier than that. Be more discerning than that. You know, you hear a lot about missionary dating or flirt to convert, you know, this kind of theory. Oh, I'll go out with them, and I'll win them for Jesus. It's a disaster in the making, because missionary dating often leads to missionary marriages. And it is hard when you're trying to ply forward while the ox that you're attached to isn't walking with you or is pulling in a different direction. He isn't listening to the Master. Because that's the picture. You're, you're harnessed together by marriage. You want to move forward, you've got to do it together. So marry someone who is kind, who is gentle, who is spiritual. Verse 5, Boaz then says to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So it's like, hello, who's this? Wow, you know. Uh, does she work for me? how how have I not seen her before this is the kind of way he's talking He, he sees a beautiful woman and his heart skips a beat is there anything wrong with that no is it spiritual not particularly but is it the way God made us absolutely This is how God made us. Looks are not the be-all and end-all, but it's a really important place to start a romantic relationship. It's a spark. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered Boaz and said, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Bethlehem's a small town. I love small towns, and I hate small towns. I love them for their charm. I hate them for their gossip, you know. Bethlehem would have been awash. Naomi coming back from into the town, it would have been. It would seem that Boaz has heard enough of the story to kind of piece some of it together. So you can almost hear it going, oh, so that's the girl who came with. Now, all oh, right, so she's the one who said, my God will be my, your God and my, your people will be my people. And, ah, right, okay, so, so that's her. You know, he's heard bits of the story and he can piece it together. And so again, this, this servant still speaking to Boaz, she said to me, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So she's made an impression on Boaz. Wow, he's this girl. But she's also made an impression on the line manager. She's come in, she's worked hard, she's had a great attitude. Because in chapter three, Boaz says to her, everyone knows that you're a virtuous woman. Everyone knows, We can see it in you. You work hard and you work well. And so Boaz then said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, Don't, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. Don't go anywhere, dear. Keep close to me, my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field where they're reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels. Drink what the young men have drawn. In other words, there's stuff that's set aside just for my workers. You help yourself. The, you know, the, the poor, the fatherless, the travelers, they have to bring their own stuff. But listen, you, you help yourself to the, to the employees' stuff. They've met. First line, first impression. Boaz is protective. And this is the first move. I, I almost imagine him speaking with a John Wayne accent, you know, kind of just sort of strutting up, you know, and kind of flicking the cap and saying, hey there, little lady. Because it's not that far removed, you know. Listen, my daughter. Hey there, little lady. Is it that far apart, really? These guys will look out for you. I've told them to watch out for you. He's protective, now, this may sound corny. It might even sound a wee bit dated in 2019, but I believe it is still true. Men, it is right and proper that you make your wife, your girlfriend, your fiance feel safe. Protect them. And it's not just physical, right? It's not that kind of macho stuff. It's more than that. There's the emotional and spiritual side of it, that, that whoever, um, whoever they are, whatever they're going through, they feel safe around you. And you may be th- that they want to talk to you and say, Oh, Jeff, I'm not really a talker. I don't really do emotions and feelings. All right, now my wife's going to want to talk to me all day about feelings and stuff. Yes, exactly. Because you know what? Most men are not talkers. Do you know why? Because your job's meant to be to listen. She's the talker. Let her talk. You're not talking. You're there to listen, so listen, not talk. Now, chivalry unfortunately seems to be dead, and it's a great shame. How many men out there will buy your wife flowers, just because? Just because you want her to know that she's loved, not because you forgot you're at her birthday or anniversary, or um, you're walking through the graveyard and you know people just leave flowers there all the time. You know, it's just Matthew Henry wrote that woman was not taken from man's head to rule over him nor his feet to be walked on but from his side so that she may be close to his heart and protected by his love. Men, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your wife or your fiance or your girlfriend is not the knowledge that you're going to swoop in like Superman and fix everything. I, I don't think my experience limited as it may be is that that isn't necessarily the thing that they want most but we as, as men we get so focused on, on looking strong or not looking weak and so we want to come in we want to fix everything we, we want to problem solve we want to tell people what to do and say look just do this do this do this and it'll be sorted right that's it talked about we're sorted we're moving on she's not looking for someone to come in and fix everything she's looking to Christ to do that all right. She's looking to Christ affects to everything. So let her look to Christ your job, your attitude towards you is, look, whatever I can give you, whatever I can do, whatever I can provide, I will do that. And I'll do all that I can to point you to Christ. I've got you. I will give you all that I have to make sure that your needs are met. I will provide for you. I will overwhelm you with my love. I will listen. I will hear you. I will fight for you more than I will ever fight with you. Because sometimes, sometimes, if you're talking to someone and they interrupt you, and they want to fix it or they want to move the conversation on or they want to change the subject or they don't want to hear what you have to say, how is it that you feel? You feel silenced, you feel devalued, you feel like what you have to say doesn't matter, or at least that they think that it doesn't matter or has no value. And yet, so often, the person who silences the woman the most is supposed to be the one who's listening to her and building her up. Be careful how we do that. Be very careful. I know men, we think that we've got all the answers, but we like to think we do. Sometimes the best solution is just to listen. Give, give meaning, give substance to what they're saying and simply just hear. We work through things differently. Let them go through it. Let them work through it and respect that. Verse 10. She hears this and she falls on her face. What is your reaction? You know, here you grab that stuff. Boom, <laughs> you know broken nose everywhere. She bows to the ground. It's, it's, it's a sign of respect. She, she, she kneels. <coughs> and she says to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Since I'm a foreigner, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. So, so what's a guy like you talking to someone like me? I don't know how you th- find this, if it's coming across really sort of sexist or kind of um, anti-feminist or, or whatever, if you're looking at it and sort of thinking, what is happening here? It doesn't feel like this really works anymore. Maybe she should be playing it a wee bit cooler, trying to be a wee bit harder to get, you know, not laying it all out. All, all, so, so. But what's happening is that there's respect being shown to her and she responds by culturally by showing respect back. Okay, it was culturally appropriate, but it's, it, it's respect being given between two people. Now, it's humble. Why, why would you do this for me? You go back to verse 2. Look, please let me go. Verse 7, please let me glean. Let me go work. Let me get about what I have to do. And so there's a graciousness about her. Let me do this. Let me go sweat all day in a field. Let me do the hard labor. Could you imagine your, your children saying that? You know, please let me go tidy my room. Please let me go tidy the rest of the house. Please let me spend the day weeding in the garden. Please let me wash the cars. You know, you'd be in therapy if they said that. And yet this is the nature of her. She says, please let me go do this. She's endured a hard trip across the Dead Sea Plains, the hottest place on the earth. Uh, She's living in poverty. She's given up a comfortable life in Moab to do this. Yet she's not acting entitled. She's not a self-pitying martyr. She's not saying, well, it's about time someone showed me a wee bit of respect around here. It's about time somebody talked to me like the woman I am. You realize I could be married move up. You realize I could be happily with someone? You realize the kind of guy I could get? But her spirit's fully intact here. There's, there's still this graciousness about it. Her experiences would have taken a toll on anyone else. They did take a toll on Naomi, and we've seen that last week. She sent Ruth away without as so much a go, daughter. No, there wasn't any thought of, I'll be praying for you. Thank you. She's still bitter. But Ruth is looking to go and, and to do, and, and yet she's still humble enough to be thinking, why would someone like you want to help me? That's so nice. That's so kind. Just as we close, here, here, here's the point. A woman's attitude can make her more beautiful than any makeover or any dress or styling ever can. And likewise a poor attitude can make someone come across very ugly indeed. Men, seek out a woman whose beauty is more than skin deep. It's the attitude of first Peter three. It says, Don't let the adorning be external the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. She's gentle. She's gracious. There's a beauty to her attitude. And then Boaz answers her question, why would you take notice of me? And Boaz says, well, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. It's respect. He, he's saying to her, I see you. I, I, I see what you've gone through. I see what you've been dealing with. And I'm amazed by it. He shows her great respect and he makes her feel warm and at home. He says, you've, you're one of us now. You can see that in verse 12. The Lord repays what you've done, uh, uh, the God of it, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. You're one of us now. I see that. You're not a foreigner anymore. You're talking like a foreigner, but don't think like that because you're not. Remember, how do you feel when someone simply dismisses your trials? He says, well, you probably got yourself into that mess. Ah, well, you probably deserve it. Someone who insists, oh, I hear what you're going through, but did you hear what I've gone through? And they try to one-up you. You feel small, you feel cheap, and you feel silenced. But that's not how Boaz and Ruth are talking to each other. There's great respect. She's saying, oh, why would someone like you want to talk to someone like me? And he said, oh, because I, I see you. I know what you're going through, and I'm impressed. I'm in awe of what you're doing. Relationships will fall apart the moment you lose respect for that other person. And it is very easy to erode respect, but it is, very, it is a very long and hard road to build it up again. It takes sensitivity uh, and, and so, simple things that you have to verbalize. You can't just assume that people are picking up on it, but to say, I am proud of you. I was speaking on YF before Christmas, and, and I happened to say to people, Look, I am proud of you. There's about six of them in tears because they'd never heard it before. They, they've never heard someone say, I am proud of you. I no, thought, That's crazy. It's crazy. So, tell your spouse. Tell your husband, tell your wife, I'm proud of you. I appreciate the struggles that you're facing. I I recognize the scars that you have, and I love you still. I love you more. I am proud to be yoked with you. I am proud to be identified with you. When I speak of you to the guys at work or in front of the kids, I I build you up because it's the most natural thing in the world to me to talk well of you. I like the man who who said, if there is any kind words to be spoken, let us speak them now while our loved ones are yet with us. If there are good deeds to be done, let us do them today. For flowers on a casket and kind words on a gravestone bring no cheer to the dead. I've been in intensive care units when someone has slipped away and passed away. And a family member will just throw themselves on the body and they'll cry. And they'll say, what I really wanted to say. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I should have said this sooner. And it's too late. So build your relationship on love and respect and generosity and sensitivity. And you're going to have to verbalize it. Don't wait until it is too late. Folks, in a world that allows TV and media to dictate to dictate the, the expectations of a relationship, of what it's supposed to look like, that love is physical, and that we, it should be dictated by how we feel in the moment, that is the nice stuff and kind of ignores the hard stuff, or simply will say, look, if it's broke, don't fix it. Just replace it. Just go and get a new one. It's fine. It's easier. Life's too short. In a world that will cheapen relationships, look for a man like Boaz. Look for a woman like Ruth. But seek to be a man like Boaz. Seek to be a woman like Ruth. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this timely reminder that we should take our relationship seriously, Lord. So often, uh, the person who we are yoked to is the person who we take for granted the most. We assume that the love is stronger. We assume that the things that they do will always be done for us. Or, uh, we forget to say thank you. We forget to be appreciative. We forget to be tender. We forget to be caring. And so, Lord, I pray that it would be a wake-up call Lord, that while there's still plenty of time to make amends, Lord, that we would readjust our course settings. Lord, that we would be more conscious of how we speak to one another, of how we treat one another, of the carelessness that sometimes we treat our spouse with. Lord, I pray for those who are younger in the church who still have these choices to make, Lord, I I pray that they would prioritize these characteristics, Lord, that it wouldn't just be enough for them to be good-looking and available. But, Lord, that our, our young people would be picky. Lord, that they would seek a better option, the best option. Lord, one that they can commit to and be yoked to. And so, Lord, I would pray this morning that it would be a time for reflection, a time to think, a time to reflect on, on, on the choices that we've made. And Lord, I pray that we would be more Christ-like in our marriages, and we pray this in your name. Amen. I'm gonna ask uh, Robert and the musicians to come back and then